morning, church. Happy Sabbath to you. Shabbat Shalom, if you're into that. Sabata Rakanaka, if you're into that. That's how they say it in Zimbabwe, which is pretty cool. So happy Sabbath. So I'm Brandon Westgate. I'm the youth director of the Rocky Mountain Conference and all of these green shirts. Um, I have the pleasure of doing ministry with up at Glacier View Ranch this summer. So we're looking forward to that. We're looking forward to the arrival of campers on Sunday. I've already met one of our campers that's coming on Sunday. And uh, she's excited about camp. And I know we've got a few others that are excited about camp as well. Anybody excited about summer camp? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's good. That's good. I wanted also to extend a happy Father's Day to the fathers in the house here. Um, being a father is a challenge. And it's a good challenge. It's really a good stretch. We'll talk about that in a few minutes as we get into the message. Um, but I did want to acknowledge you this morning. I know that um, a lot of times the role of father um, kind of gets muted in our society. Just about every television program that I see lately has fathers as the figure that's kind of the brunt of the jokes. Not really exalted in the home. He's just sort of uh, kind of the comic relief in a lot of shows. Kind of the dullard and those kinds of things. But we all know, I hope we all know, that that's not really the case. It may cause us to laugh a little bit, maybe at ourselves or other people, but, but I just want to acknowledge you as a father today, if, if that's you, I recognize because I am one that it's a tremendous responsibility, and as I said, as we open up scripture together, we're going to look at that as well, we're going to look at a couple of different fathers today, maybe even three, and, um, and kind of see what, what the results of being a good father are, and maybe what the results of not being a good father could be as well, but let's pray together. As we open scripture together, if you'd pray with me, whatever prayer posture you want to assume, I'm going to kneel. You don't have to do that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pause in your presence on a beautiful Sabbath day, and we just thank you for loving us like you do. We're thankful that you are our Father, the one we have chosen. And pray, Lord, as we open up the words of scripture together, that you would speak to us from the word that you would remind us of the incredible God you are and may we also be reminded that you are the approachable God, that we have nothing to fear as we enter into your presence. And so bless us, we pray in Jesus' name, and the whole church said, amen. Amen. If you got a Bible this morning, I grabbed one out of the pew. Um, I thought it might be easier for some of you who may weren't packing one today. Page 266, 267, um, it's 1 Samuel. And uh, 1 Samuel is an interesting, it's an interesting read, honestly. Um, but I just wanted to pick a few highlights, and then we're going to kind of zoom in on a few verses that may challenge you a bit. Um, and so I'm going to summarize a bit. We're not going to read it all together, but if you've got something, uh, if you've got a quiet place to sit this afternoon, reading these first three chapters wouldn't be a bad activity, I can tell you that. So this says this. It says um, at the very beginning... Um, the author kind of gives us the list, the cast of characters that are going to show up in the book. And the first, one of the first names we see is this guy Elkanah. And Elkanah is a father. Um, he's married a wife. Her name was Hannah. We've got three Hannahs at camp this summer, so that's fun. Um, yeah, he marries a woman named Hannah. And Hannah, for whatever reason, and we find out that reason as you keep reading, um, she's not able to bear children. And the challenging verse that you might get to is the reason she hasn't been able to 
bear children is because the Lord had closed her womb. So I want to pause here for a moment and recognize that there are some women who struggle conceiving children. One possible reason the Bible gives for that is that the Lord could close your womb. There's all kinds of other reasons as well related to DNA and congenital issues and all kinds of other things. Hannah's issue was because God was preventing her because God needed her son to arrive at a specific time. And we see that happens a few times in Scripture. Some of you remember, remember uh, in the book of Luke, there's a couple. He actually is a priest, and his wife is also from the tribe of Levi. Her name was Elizabeth. And they were an old couple beyond childbearing years. And then, because of this encounter that happens in the temple, in this holy place, she conceives and she bears this boy whose name is John, and he's John the Baptist. And God needed her to wait because he had a son in mind for her, but it wasn't at that time that she wanted it. It was later in her life when she didn't expect it. Same thing happens with Abram and Sarah, doesn't it? There's a delay there as well, and the son of promise doesn't arrive until Abram is nearly 100 years old. And so sometimes God intervenes in things in such a way that he delays things in our life because either we're not ready for those things or the world isn't ready for those things. And that's the case with Hannah here. He marries Hannah. They want to have children. She's not able to produce children. And because of that, the custom and the practice back then was for him to take a second wife, and he did, Peninnah. You'll see that name in, in the text. And Peninnah is able to produce children. And so he has sons and he has daughters from his second wife and no children from his first wife, Hannah. And she's distressed by that and he's distressed by that. And the way you can tell that Elkanah's a really good father is that he's always faithful to take his family to the temple to offer sacrifices. He's a, what we would call a religious man. His faith isn't just something he talks about, it's something he puts on display. And Elkanah, as a father, is really reflected in a very good light in the book of Samuel. You know the story, if you haven't heard it before, like I said, I recommend you read it, but Hannah is so distressed because Peninnah is always kind of lording it over her that she has children and Hannah doesn't, and she teases her to the point where Hannah, every time they go to the feast, is reduced to tears, and she's so sick, she can't even eat. And in her frustration, in her, in her, in her weeping, she, she does something that many of us would do well to do in those moments. She actually turns to God, and she begins to pray. Now, another character enters the story at that point, and he's a father as well. His name is Eli. And Eli is the high priest. And Eli has two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And you're going to find out that they're not very good boys. Eli, even though he's supposed to be the spiritual leader of Israel, has had some kind of major deficiency in his parentship. He hasn't been an adequate father for his boys. And maybe I should pause here and just acknowledge something that maybe we're all thinking at this point. A very simple act of biology can make a man a father.
but really to become a dad really requires an investment of time and energy and effort some of you may have fathers some of you may have dads I was privileged to have a dad in my life he passed away in September uh, he lived a good life he was 85 when he passed away he retired at 55 he had a 30-year retirement um, he was a good good father he loved the Lord wasn't afraid to talk about spiritual things and he provided for his children provided for his family even though he divorced his first wife and so there's challenging things that happen and I have not met and maybe you're the exception but I've never met the ideal perfect family. Has anybody met that family yet? <laughs> 19 years of ministry and I haven't met that family yet. Some of them look really good on, on Sabbath morning and you think they've got it all together. And I can tell you when you visit in homes like that, you realize that a lot of them don't have it all together. And so I don't know what your family structure looks like. Gentlemen, if you've been married, divorced. Ladies, if you've been married, divorced, and, and things are complicated with those relationships and children and stepchildren and adopted children and foster children and all those kinds of things, the reality is if you want to be a dad, you're going to have to invest time, effort, energy, influence, and you're going to have to pour that in to the life of your children. And whether those children are biologically yours or otherwise, you have a responsibility to them. And I would dare say that the men of this church have a responsibility for the children in this church. That it takes a village to raise children. Can you say amen to that? And so gentlemen, if you're up for the task, I would implore you to, to be like Elkanah who, who didn't only talk about his faith, but he demonstrated his faith. Now, when Eli enters the picture, he catches Hannah praying and because it was so rare in Israel those days for somebody to actually pray, he thought she was intoxicated. Now, I don't know how, it took me a while when I first read through this to think, the high priest is so unaccustomed to seeing people pray that he thought she was drunk because just nobody does that anymore. I hope that's not the case in your life. I hope people catch you praying from time to time. I, I hope your children walk in on you praying at some point. And they go, wow, my folks actually have a real relationship with God. Eli catches her praying and, and he thinks she's drunk and she says she's not drunk and they talk about those things and, and Eli is high priest he just says may the Lord grant your prayer and, and upon hearing that her countenance changes and she's able to eat and, and she goes back home and lo and behold she conceives a son and she calls him Samuel which is an interesting name because it sounds like a Hebrew word that means heard by God but the actual meaning of the name is the name of God Samuel's name means name of God which is a powerful powerful name we've got a Sam working for us at camp name of God no pressure Samuel yeah what's interesting is what follows because 
we recognize that that Hannah's prayer, and if you didn't, I, I didn't mention it, but maybe you've heard the story before. When Hannah prays, she is she is so desirous of a son that instead of being selfish with that desire, she turns it outward and she says, God, if you will just give me a son, I'm going to give him straight back to you. If, if you'll just remove my reproach, remove my barrenness, if you give me a son, I'm going to give him straight back to you. He's going to be your boy, not mine. And the Lord honors her prayer, and so she honors her request to God. She keeps her vow. And when her boy is weaned, that's different than it is in 21st century North America, where children are weaned usually after a year or less. In that culture at that time, it could be three or four years of age. Very common, still practice that way. And so Samuel is probably a toddler, probably potty trained. I worked with toddlers. I was a daycare worker for about a year. I had nine toddlers, 18 months to three years. You want to talk about a fun day? Mix it up with nine toddlers. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. She, she takes her boy... Her boy's taken to the temple, and I want you to kind of think about this, and she entrusts the care of her toddler to the high priest, to Eli, who everybody knows hasn't been a great father to his own children. But she's not just entrusting him to Eli, she's entrusting to whom? To God. She is giving him to God, and she's saying, God, you gave me him, I said I'm going to give him back, and I am, and so he's yours. And so I'm out, but he's here, and he's yours. And I can tell you, being a parent, I don't know if I could do that. If I could just leave my boy in the temple with a high priest who's aging and obviously deficient in parenting and two knucklehead priests and we'll find out in just a few minutes what I mean by that whose mor morality is questionable at best but she does and she leaves him there and and in 1 Samuel chapter 2 there's just a contrast that's really what the author is painting he's painting a contrast between the sons of Eli and this boy Samuel. So I want you, if you got your Bible, I'm, I'm on page 267 in the Pew Bible, the hymnal Bible. It's 1 Samuel chapter 2, and it's in verse, I'm in verse 12. And this Bible reads, it says this, it says, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. <laughs> I, I can tell you because I've studied it, the New King James Version says they were corrupt. The NIV, which is an interesting translation as well, it uses a different word for it. Because the word is, it, it can mean several different things. Um, but when we get into it, the idea here is that these guys, they just weren't very good men. Um, the NIV uses the word scoundrels. <laughs> okay? They were scoundrels. These are priests in Israel. They're supposed to be representing God. They're supposed to be representing God to the people. And by all accounts, they're corrupt scoundrels who are worthless. And yet they have the title of priest. Could it be that a religious leader 
could be corrupt? Could it be that a religious leader could be a scoundrel? Some of you are thinking right now, and if I did a poll, probably everyone in here could name two or three religious leaders who have been exposed and their corrupt, scoundrel, worthless life has been exposed. It's not only does the text, verse 12, say they were worthless men, it has a statement there, and it reads in this Bible, they did not know the Lord. They're supposed to represent the Lord, and they don't even know Him. How do you represent someone you don't know? Which, by the way, is our main goal during Staff Week. Our main goal during Staff Week is to connect our God to their Creator so that they can then connect our campers to the God that they know. But these two sons of Eli, they didn't even know the Lord. And I can tell you that times haven't changed that much. Religious leaders are still corrupt today. And in case you haven't heard, and I'll be delicate this with this because I know we have tender ears here. But it was just 11 days ago, June 6th to be precise, that the Wisconsin Conference of Seventh-day Adventists issued a public statement regarding one of the pastors in their conference. And as I said, I'm going to be delicate here. He went on a mission trip to Venezuela, engaged with the people in that community, and formed a, I'm going to use this word, but it's cringy. He formed a relationship with a six-year-old boy that he persuaded to text him pictures that were, let's just say, completely inappropriate, and they were texting pictures back and forth. He has been removed from his post. His credentials will be taken. He will not be able to serve in the position of pastor in the Seventh-day Adventist Church again. This is a husband, father of two other boys. And you can probably come up with your own words to describe how you feel about that, heartbreaking, disturbing, and a host of other things you might find. But, but we are not immune as Adventists. There, there's no protective bubble here shielding us from evil. The only thing that keeps us from descending down a path of corruption is when we're super intentional about maintaining our walk with God. This Hophni and Phineas were, <laughs> I'll just use the word here in this scripture, worthless. They were worthless men. And you can read about some of the things that they were doing, some of the shenanigans they were pulling. And, and what you'll notice as you read that little passage, when you come to verse 18, there's a contrasting verse that just cuts right through that because it says these guys were corrupt, but Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed in a linen ephod. And some of you hear that word ephod and you go, oh, that's priestly garments. This linen ephod that this boy was wearing is what the priest would wear. So while the big priest with the name and the titles are up to a bunch of rotten shenanigans, this little boy is dressed the part and actually ministering before the Lord with no degree, with no title, with no acknowledgement. He is doing what they should have been doing. 
as I said, it's a study in contrast. Verse 22 picks up another way that these Hophni and Phinehas were corrupt. You can read it. I don't have to unpack it for you. They were doing very inappropriate things with people that they shouldn't have been anyway. But when you get down to verse 26, it's that other contrasting statement that jumps in, and it says, the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with men. And some of you say, hey, that sounds familiar. Anybody heard that before? Yeah, who was that in reference to? Yeah, it was in reference to Jesus, right? Book of Luke, it says that Jesus, right, that he grew in wisdom and stature and favor with both God and man. And so this, this boy Samuel, he is on track. He is already engaging in some really powerful things. Now, we're going to jump here to chapter 3. So, page 268, if you have this Bible, if you're following along. And I'm going to read some things here because I want you to recognize that, that Samuel was a little different. And I wanted to set the stage there so that we can have a conversation. So, I, I appreciate, um, I, I, I like sermons. I get a lot from them. I, I get a lot from Pastor Jeff's sermons. I appreciate your ministry, Jeff. How many of you appreciate Jeff, Pastor Jeff? Yeah, I hope you tell him that frequently and often. Um, psychologists tell us that we remember negative comments ten times longer than positive ones, okay? And I'm not going to ask him because I know the answer already because I've been pastoring for 19 years. Um, pastors get negative comments. And those are the things that we brood over. And it's the same thing for you when you get a negative comment. Ten people can tell you good things. One person tells you something negative, and you remember the negative thing. But, but I want to encourage you as a church to just overwhelm him with good comments so that your good comments outweigh and then mute the negative ones. Can you guys do that? And you ought to do that for each other as well, right? Yeah. As Christians, we ought to be giving each other praise and accolades all the time, right? Because the enemy is always trying to drown out those positive affirmations with negative stuff and make us brood on those things, and then we begin to spiral, right? And nobody wants to spiral. So, chapter 3, you with me? Chapter 3, it says, Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. So let's wrestle with that verse a minute. Why do you suppose the word of the Lord was rare in those days? Anybody want to shout out or, or give a contribution? I'd like for you to. I want this to be a dialogue and not a monologue. I said I appreciate sermons. I really appreciate Sabbath school, right? Bible studies, I appreciate those. Because that's when we can go back and forth, right? Uh, my Bible says as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another, right? And uh, if it's just a monologue, you just sort of take what you get, right? But man, if it's a discussion, now we can throw ideas back around. So the text says that the word of the Lord was rare. Why do you think that was? Not everybody all at once. It's chaos when that happens. Yeah, what do you got? Something to do with Eli. Something to do with the high priest and his sons being corrupt. What do you think? Good answer? Yeah, I would say that's a pretty good answer. There could be other reasons as well, right? Uh, the, the prayer seems to be a rare thing, right? 
Nobody's praying. When people are praying, the high priest thinks she's drunk, right? And so there's no prayer taking place. There's corrupt leaders. Can, why would God give a message of guidance and transformation when they're not even following the message of guidance and transformation he's already given them? Why would he give them new insight when they're not even following the old counsel they've already been given? Do you understand? I think that's what we call the economy of God. The economy of God. Why would God give you new things, new revelation, if he's already given you personal revelation that you refuse to follow? See, I think God leads us step by step into a deeper, more committed faith with him. And when God reveals something in your life, and he's saying, you know what, if you change this, I'm going to really be able to bless you. And you go, oh, I'm not sure I want to change that, but what else you got? And I think God is always calling us back, no, 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 no. But if, you, if you'll deal with this, see, then I can really bless you. And we go, I don't really want to deal with that. What else you got, God? And he says, no, 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 no. If you'll, if you'll just deal with this, see. And I think that's where he was with Israel at that time. I think he was, I, th I think they had made themselves stuck. That they weren't willing to listen to God. And some of that, I'm sure a lot of that, had to do with the corrupt priesthood. But let's press on here. The word of the Lord was rare in those days. Verse 2, it says, at that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim. I can relate wholeheartedly with that statement. Yeah, I'm glad there's a nice light here, because otherwise my readers would be on my face. But his, his eyesight had begun to grow dim so they could not see. He was lying down in his own place. Now, I don't know where that place was, but he was lying down somewhere. He was lying down somewhere. Somewhere in the temple area. And then it says, verse 3, the lamp of God had not yet gone out. Who, what is the lamp of God? Anybody have an idea what that is? I can see you. Anybody know what that is? I'm sure you guys do. Somebody just shouted out. What's the lamp of God? Do we have that picture? Did I send you guys a picture of the sanctuary? Can you throw that up there? Yeah, that candlestick. That's King James Version, candlestick. Lamp stand is a better definition because it wasn't like wax candles, throw it out, replace it was a, there was wicks and olive oil that actually fueled that lamp stand. Yeah, you guys familiar with this? How many of you are familiar with this? How many of you have seen this before, looked at it before, gazed upon it before, studied it before? Yeah, this is the old sanctuary. Now, this first Samuel is set not in Jerusalem, but in Shiloh, where the first temple was. And the first temple was destroyed and relocated and moved to Jerusalem, and it was built and built again. And... And this is sort of a map, a blueprint, if you will, um, of what that temple looked like, okay? This is probably more closely related to the one in the first century where Jesus would have hung out, but, but it works for us today. You guys see where it says holy place there? Holy place. Yeah, holy place. It's not exactly aligned how it should be, but it's pretty close. That, that little thing there that looks like, I don't know, it's supposed to be a lampstand. Can you guys see where I'm talking about? It's right below the P in the word holy place, okay? Yeah, that's, that's that lamp of God, okay? So we're talking temple here, okay? We're talking the temple area. Eli's asleep somewhere, probably a compartment somewhere nearby. He's, he's sleeping. He's down. Scripture is telling us. This may stretch you a little bit. Scripture is telling us in verse 3, the lamp of God had not yet gone out. And Samuel was lying down in the temple of God. Where the ark of God was. 
Now, it's not up here, but how many people know where the ark of God was placed in this? Some of you do. Somebody shout out, tell me where it was. The most holy place. The most holy place. Now, when you hear ark of God, tell me what you think. Tell me what you know about the ark of God. What's that? Sacred? Seat of mercy. Hallelujah. Thank you for that. What would you say, Frederick? Oh, a guy touched it and he died, right? Whoa. Yeah, Second Samuel chapter 6, I think, is that story. Yeah, ark of God, most holy place. Let me ask you this, and we can run through this because well, I want you guys to get this. Um, who was allowed in the court of women? Do you guys know who was allowed there? <laughs> women and men, actually. Women and men were allowed there. When you see Jesus in the temple and he's in the treasury or the, it's the same place, the court of women, that's where he's hanging out, okay? That's where Jesus does a lot of his ministry. The woman caught in adultery, that's where she was thrown down, was in that area. That's the closest a woman of Israel could get to, to anything that has to do with God, okay? As close as she could go. By the way, outside of that, um, it's not shown here, was a court of the Gentiles. It's outside the wall, okay? If you're a Gentile and you're kind of curious about Israel and maybe you're thinking about um, proselytizing and following their religious tradition, there was a, a court out there called the Court of Gentiles. That's the closest you could go if you were a Gentile. Um, they had signs up that said if you're a Gentile and you cross this point, the punishment is death, and they meant it, okay? Um, by the way, Paul says all this stuff's broken down now, right? There's no male, female, Jew, Gentile, all this. We all have access to something. We'll talk about that in a second. The men, you see where it says court of Israel? It's sort of written this way, kind of in the middle. If you're, a, if you're an observant Hebrew, first century and earlier, this is where you would go. That's where the altar was. That's where you brought a sacrifice for you and your family. This is where Elkanah would have brought his sacrifice. They bring him in there. That's the closest you can go as a Hebrew male to getting into the holy place or the holy of holies, right? So only Hebrew men were allowed there. Women couldn't go there. They had to stay. Eh, don't ask me why. I don't know. That, but that's the way it was, okay? Um, who could go inside the holy place? Who could go in there? Just priests. Just priests. How often could they go in? What did you guys say? I didn't hear you. Daily. Yeah, daily. They were ministering there daily, Okay. Sin offerings and all kinds of offerings were being brought in daily, right? And the, the altar is where the, where the life was taking of the animal that was representing God, right? That was representing Jesus ultimately. And the blood was taken inside the holy place, right? And so ministry was taking place there all the time inside the holy place by priests. Now tell me, who could enter the holy of holies or the most holy? Who could enter there? High priest, no one else. Only the high priest. So he could he hang out in there every day, or what was that? How often could he go in? One day. Did he hang out in there all day? No, it was just a hot second, right? He would go in there, and he would do what he needed to do, and then he would go right back out, right? And all of this, by the way, is set up to protect holiness, okay? Because God is holy, we're trying to preserve holiness. That's, that's the whole idea here, okay? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Now, let's fall back and regroup here. We're going to read 
1 Samuel chapter 3 again. We're just going to read verse 3. I'm going to read verse 3 and 4, and we're just going to talk for a minute, okay? And give you something to wrestle with. So this translation and many others, most translations read it almost exactly like this, by the way. The Hebrew is not super hard to translate here. It says, the lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord God called Samuel, and he said, here I am. And he ran to Eli. Here I am, you called me. But he said, I didn't call you, go lie down again. So he went and lay back down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. Samuel arose, went to Eli, and he said, here I am, you called me. But he said, I didn't call you, my son, lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. And the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. The one thing I want you to think about right here is this. Is that you may not know God yet, but he knows you. You may not have a relationship with God yet. You may not have trusted him yet. You may not even really know who he really is yet, but he knows you. He knew Samuel before Samuel knew him. Now let's rewind a little bit. Samuel was lying down. It's gone, that's okay. Samuel was lying down, it says, where the ark of God was. Now how could it be that God would allow this boy, uh, by the way, Josephus says he's about 12, most, most Bible scholars will tell you that's about what he was, about 12 years of age, just a boy. Not this week at camp, next week. He's just a boy. And, and it's like he's taken his sleeping bag and he pushed behind the veil and he thought, well, here's a quiet spot. And I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna camp out in front of this golden box. And he sleeps there in front of the presence of God. He sleeps there. Now, that may stretch you a bit, stretched me a bit. I, I was a New King James guy for years and years and years, and three years ago I switched to NIV and just started reading through. And Because New King James doesn't put it as clearly as some of the other translations put it. When I got there, I just sort of pumped the brakes, and I said, wait a minute. <laughs> you mean to tell me that this boy is sleeping in the Holy of Holies? I didn't say it. That's Scripture, okay, by the way. I'll give you a couple of options in a minute, too, for those of you who are really uneasy about this. I'll give you some options. Um, but I truly believe, personally, that God was already recognizing Samuel as high priest. That he was already pouring into him as high priest. And not only priest, but prophet. And he's pouring into this tender youth. He's, he's, he's giving him insight and wisdom that should have been reserved for Eli. And it's as though he's already saying, Eli's not my man anymore, you are. And in the innocence and purity of this boy Samuel, God is totally fine with him sleeping in his bedroom. Now, there may be other reasons why he was in there, because I've wrestled with this a little longer than some of you have, because for some of you this is probably new. It could be that Eli maybe told him to go in there, as a way to protect him from his priest sons. 
who are already so far into debauchery that, yeah, you can fill in the blanks. It could be. I, I don't know why he was in there, but it sure appears like he was. That Samuel went behind the veil and entered into the very presence of God and just, just hung out there, just slept there in front of God before he even knew God. Now, there's a couple of amazing things by the way today when Jesus was crucified the veil was torn and we all now have free access right to enter into the very presence of God with no veil with nothing hindering with no restriction you can by faith step in behind the curtain it's not there anymore and enter into the very presence of God you can speak to God face to face with no priest interceding for you praise God amen yeah now, some of you that are uncomfortable, let me give you this, because there's a couple of options here for translation, and if you're comfortable with that, that's fine. I'm not here to push anything on you. It could be that the author here is trans, is, he's implying some kind of a spiritual closeness, as though Samuel wasn't really there, but he was just in proximity there spiritually, that he was there some kind of mystical way almost. Um, that's an option. I don't see anything else in the passage that would indicate that, but it's an option, okay? Option number two could be that the author is making a statement something like this. We went to France, where the Eiffel Tower is, and we had a good time, okay? And we did go to France, but we were nowhere near the Eiffel Tower. But that is where the Eiffel Tower is, okay? So the author could be saying... That Samuel was there in the temple. Oh, that's where the Ark of the Covenant is. That's where he was. He was, he was there. It could be that. Could be. But for me, from the study that I've done here, I think the most accurate translation of that is the actual reading of the text, which is that Samuel was literally behind the veil, literally sleeping in front of the Ark of God. And that God accepted him into his presence because he, in his innocence and in his purity, he needed him there. He needed Samuel to be close to him. He needed Samuel to fully enter in to that relationship. And so maybe it was God that invited him there. And Samuel didn't even know him then. So what's the takeaway from all this? What's the challenge piece? What's the, what's the opportunity we have here? Well, I think the opportunity is this. What would it look like for you, for me, to recognize that we have access to stand in the very presence of God? With nothing between, with, with no pretense, with no ceremony, with no circumstance, with no pomp or any of that stuff. If we just by faith entered into God's presence and we stood there fully exposed because God knows us, what would that do for you? How might that transform your life, your heart, your, your mission, your ministry, your, your family? And then imagine what that would look like 
if everyone in here did that. If we all by faith just stepped out and pushed aside the veil that's in our mind maybe and just stepped out and entered right into the presence of God and just said, hey God, it's me. Here I am. How can you use me? How can I better serve you? How, how can I better reflect your love to other people? How can I be your servant? Can you imagine what that would do to this community right here? And then can you imagine how if all of us did that, how we could impact the folks outside the walls of this building? Man, what a powerful thing that would be. And so, I don't know if you're willing or not, but if you're willing to just sort of, in a representative way, just kind of stand and say, hey, I'm willing to enter God's presence that way, then just stand with me. I, I just want to pray with you, that's all. Just something simple, okay? But if you're thinking, man, I just want to, in my mind, just going to put aside those curtains and just stand in God's presence just for a moment. Yeah. Now, let me pray with you. Father, now here we stand. And we acknowledge your presence. We, many of us, Father, are afraid of what we might experience here as we just acknowledge you as God, as creator, as sovereign, as, as our God, the one who knows us, the one who established us. And I just pray, Father, in the quietness of this place that you would reveal yourself to us, that you would call us by name, and that you would then, Father, reveal to us what you need us to be about how we can help the cause of Christ how we can Father be of service to you Father speak to us Father, might need more time today with you, more time in your presence so that we can experience your blessing, and so I pray, Lord, that you would help us arrange the day to, to set aside some time that's just focused on hearing from you, so that we can truly, Father, experience that communion with our Father. Bless us, Father. We humbly ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We've got some...